How many of you have ever competed in a three-legged race? We are going to have, no, we're not going to have one this morning. Yeah. Figured it'd be a quick way to dry off, get, burn some, some steam. No, if you've competed, if you've competed in a three-legged race, you will know to effectively compete in a three-legged race, there are some logistics or some tips and tricks that can make your effort the most effective effort. Um, and I, I will say, not to brag, but in my lifetime, I've won a few three-legged races. So I, I, have, uh, I, have, some, I have some tips and tricks I can provide. I'm gonna ask, I haven't even told Hudson this. Hudson, come up here. I need to demonstrate for, uh, for everyone what a three-legged race is like. You're going to need to take your jacket off because that's, uh, that's one of the things. You've got you to get all the extra off. When, you have a, when you're, when you're a competing in a three-legged race, come over here. Comp- competing in a three-legged race, two people are standing side by side. And their legs, the inner legs that are connect, are, are, no, they don't cross. That'd be bad. They are strapped together. So one of the th- important parts about competing in a three-legged race is that they're strapped together. They're united in one leg together. Another thing that helps is when um, they are similar in size. Well, we kind of failed on that one, so, um, but you can still win. Um, and in order to make sure that the team functions in the race, one of the things that helps too is for us to take our arms and closely hold each other together so that we are united together in our movements. We want to make sure that what we do, it moves together. But we could do all of these things. We could, we could listen to all these tips, and there's still one very important thing, one critical thing that will allow us to be effective in racing a three-legged race. You can, go, you can go back down. Thank you, buddy. The one thing that is completely necessary to be effective in a three-legged race is to have a unified mindset, to be on the same page in our mind. So if you've raced in it before, you want to know, before you start the race, which leg is going to move first? Are we going to do the outside leg first? Or are we going to do the inside leg first? So that we start together. You kind of want to get into a rhythm. A one, two, one, two, one, two. And when I've competed, I've actually said it out loud. So we're going to one, two, one, two, one, two. So we're staying in sync with each other. There is, in effect, a mutual submission happening in order for that union, the union of the two people, the two members of that team, to work well together. That's the only way that you're going to effectively win uh, a three-legged race. Everything else can be right, but if you don't have the mindset, if, you don't, if you're not unified in the mindset, then you are not going to be able to win. Similarly, when Christians are joined together with each other because of our union with Christ and our mindset is in sync with his mindset, we will be effective in living our lives as God would have us live our lives. Paul says in the beginning of this chapter, uh, Pastor Royce pointed this out last week, he said that Paul says, my joy will be complete if you live this way. So he's saying, this is the way that God wants you to live, and if you live this way, I'm going to be complete. So as we come to Philippians chapter 2, 
And we're go- I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Pastor Royce preached last week on verses 1 through 4. I'm going to pick up. This is kind of a two-parter. Although Roy- Pastor Royce and I did not plan this, and I didn't tell- we didn't tell each other this. I'm going to view this as a two-parter, because it's one clear message from 1 to 11. And Pastor Royce did a fantastic job of getting us started in this passage. But as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we find this, that peace and harmony will prevail among God's people as our attitude is transformed by our union with the prevailing Christ. I have a slide for that if you want to see it, it will help us. Peace and harmony will prevail among God's people as our attitude is transformed by our union with the prevailing Christ. So as we enter into this idea of being joined together with God. How does he want us to live? Pastor Royce talked, uh, talked about the beginning of these, these verses one through four, and the apostle Paul lays out for us the ways that we ought to live in community with each other. For instance, verse two, Pastor Royce said he calls on them to be like-minded, have the same love. Note the uniformity that is expected. The important things the mind, the heart, the love that that tie us together. Verse one says that uh, that you have been uh, you've been comforted by the love of Christ, and in the same way you ought to love one another. He pointed out that Christ is our example of this, of offering love toward the people uh, around him. Verse one says this, the spirit of God is transforming. Uh, verse one also tells us as the spirit of God is transforming us, it's aligning our hearts with him. So the spirit of God comes into us and it aligns our heart with our hearts with his. In the same way, we should be conformed together, together as a community, as the body of Christ by the spirit of Christ so that we are unified in his spirit. Pastor Royce pointed out very uh, acutely that it said that uh, this refers to our emotions. So we have the mind, but then our emotions are coming together. Jake, brother, I am so sorry you broke your arm, buddy. I, I, my, I was saddened by that. My emotions felt your emotions, obviously not to the depth and the level and obviously not a broken arm like you, but I felt it when I found out that you broke your arm. Um, and people... Same thing, when we found out we were having little Leland, we were pregnant and we couldn't get pregnant for almost 10 years. You rejoiced with us. Our emotions were knit together in those moments. Verse one also talks about as Christ showed us tenderness and compassion, we too should do the same to each other. We hurt together. We rejoice together. We are joined together, even if it leads us to suffering. We stay joined together. And then verse four, four, Pastor Royce encouraged us to avoid the temptation to look out for our own self by humbly putting ourselves, or uh, humbly putting others first. If we all engage in looking after others around us, then our affairs are being looked after by people who love us and are filled with Christ and are filled with the Spirit. So we don't concern ourselves with our own affairs. We pay attention and we look after the affairs of other people. At the center of all of this, the key to all of this is an attitude of humility. 
Humility is at the center of all of this. Humility is the key to the way that Paul calls them to live. Humility is the word that the scripture uses to describe Christ's attitude, his mindset in his, in his incarnation or his becoming man, putting on flesh. That is the attitude that, is, that describes him. Consequently, when we put on humility in the same way that Jesus did, we yield our wills, our emotions, our dreams to Jesus. So humility must prevail in us. If we understand these expectations as simply the way that we should live our lives by just following Christ's example, then yes, we have the best model that there could be. So we can look at Christ and see what he has done, the way that he has lived, the way that he has displayed and lived out his attitude, and we could say he is the perfect model of how we ought to do this. But Christ is not simply a model or an example. That's not enough. Because I'm going to tell you right now, as you go through verses 1 through 4, and you, and you read what Paul is encouraging them to do, you're like, there's no way. <laughs> I'm going to try, and I'm going to know by the end of the day, I'm not going to have the tenderness and compassion that Jesus gave to me. I'm going to be frustrated with people. I'm going to be frustrated with my wife. I'm going to be frustrated with my neighbor. I'm going to be frustrated with my coworker. And I'm telling you what, it's not happening. And I can look at him as an example all you want, and I'm just going to say it's not happening. Well, that's probably true. I'm on the same page. I'm right there with you. So is there something else? For us, then just an example or just a model of Christ's humility. Well, Christ is not simply an example. Christ is, in fact, the one that we are joined together with through the gospel. And it is his mindset, his attitude that must inhabit us in the way that we live. So if we are joined together with Christ, what that means is, is if you have believed and put your faith and trust in him, we'll talk about that more in just a bit, but if you put your faith and trust in him and his spirit has filled you and you willingly mutually submit to the work of his spirit and you operate according to his mindset, then you can accomplish these things. You can be tender-hearted towards somebody. You can yield your rights to somebody. You can show compassion and love. You can do all these things because of the union that we have in Christ. Now, this goes deeper. And this section that Pastor Royce was talking about, the center of the book, the coveted preaching passage for preachers. This is a beautiful passage, and I pray that God will allow me to help you at least understand it a little bit more. I know I will not do it justice, but the Spirit of God can take what we're going to look at and use it in our lives. But I'm going to give you this example. So this year, I mean, not sorry, this year, this week, Carlin and I observed an anniversary. Not a wedding anniversary. That's in the fall. That's in October. But we celebrated an anniversary of when I proposed to Carlin. There we were on an old iron bridge in Wisconsin in the middle, at the beginning of March, snow on the ground, 
rose petals scattered across the snow, red rose petals across the snow. And we met in the middle of this iron bridge and I got down on one knee and I said, well, I was trying to talk to her first because I was trying to tell her how much I was excited about this and how much I loved her and she wasn't listening. And I realized uh, she's not hearing a thing I'm saying. So then I got down on one knee and I said, will you marry me? And she said, can I take a look at that ring again? No, that's not what she said. She said, yes. Now, I don't know that she really knew how much the answer to that question would change her life. I don't know if she really knew, like by saying, yes, I will marry you. I love weddings. Well, (laughs) marriage is more than a wedding. She was, in fact, entering into a union with me. She was entering into a union. So 15 years ago, we were there on that bridge. If I would have asked her this, Carlin, would you enter into a permanent union with me wherein you give up all the comforts and immediate privileges of being your parents' favorite and youngest daughter? And in exchange, would you take upon yourself my name, the Blaha name? And would you become willingly obedient to whatever that demands of you? I think I would have had to have a much, much bigger ring. Because I think she would have thought, I've been hanging around the Blahas a little bit. I don't know that I, I like that idea. I don't know if that idea really stands. I mean, because, because, because think about it now. Here she is. She comes from a family where her dad took care of her. She had everything that she needed, everything she wanted. He was very, very generous with her. She was his baby. And she enters into a family like mine where this is a blasphemy for her family, where we will just have mac and cheese for dinner. She's like, That's, that is a side. <laughs> That's not dinner. She would enter into our traditions, our way of doing things, the kind of, the kind, she would have to, in essence, become obedient to the Blaha name. She would have to take on the Blaha name and whatever I do as the name, as the name holder, her husband, she would, she would, she would be willingly submitting herself to that. Now, that's a big deal. That's a win for me (laughs) because when I show up at the Blaha get togethers, I got a drop dead gorgeous wife and I've got someone who adds charm to the family name. And I've got someone who brings life and joy to the family name. That's a win for me. But for her, (laughs) are we leaving anytime soon? (laughs) Are we going to get out of here anytime soon? I don't know. I can't, you guys, you guys do things. I'm just, I'm not sure how I, how I feel about all that. The reason, the reason that I feel blessed by having her join into a union with me and the reason she feels it might be a letdown is because what I am gaining is something far greater than what I have had. And what she is accepting and what she is entering into is something that is far below what she (laughs) grew up experiencing. Now, let's look at Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to understand that Jesus takes this to the utter cosmic level. 
He takes this idea of union to the utter cosmic level. I'm going to start with verse 1 just to kind of get us going, get us, get us warmed up. Therefore, if you have any, this is, uh, if you're visiting and you want to use a pew Bible, uh, page 1012, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, there's the key, united in Christ. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Now here's our text. In your relationships with one another. So this right here, Stop right. I want us to think about this individually, but this is a community effort. This is a group effort. This is a church endeavor. This is not simply an individual effort. It is that, but it is beyond that. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something that he used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in human appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's interesting here, Paul, uh, Roy, Pastor Royce uh, already pointed this out, but this is a special part of this book. This is actually what a lot of people consider to be one of the first uh, first century hymns. So we sang uh, hymns this morning. We sang, come thou fount. We sang king of kings. Those are hymns. And Paul, there's a little bit of debate whether Paul actually wrote this by the inspiration of the spirit or whether it was something that was common around where he was and he used it. But, the, but, but it gives every indication, every appearance that it is a hymn that was well known. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take just a, side, just a quick note on the side to point out something. When we gather here together corporately, we don't, and we sing songs together, this is not just for an experience, like let, let the musicians um, create this experience that I can go away feeling good about. I hope, I hope that happens sometimes. This is not just an opportunity for people who like to sing and play instruments to get up and show how good they are. That's not what it is. And one of the reasons why we sing a lot of the songs over and over and over again, if you're here for any length of time, three months, you'll find that we sing a lot of the same songs in repetition. Why? It's because when you leave from here and we, and we want, what, we are, what, we are, what is happening during our worship service is you are being formed. You are being formed by the mind of Christ. 
So when we enter into singing, when we engage in singing, it's not just simply an activity that I have to do when I get here. And you guys do a great job, honestly. I love seeing you guys sing out. You encourage me when I'm leading up here. You guys sing out. I really appreciate it. Today, I heard your voices. I went in the back to get a drink of water before I came out to preach. And, I, I, and the instruments, I actually couldn't hear them, and I could just hear your voices. And I was like, wow, I love that. I love hearing your... That is the primary purpose for our congregational worship, is the congregational singing. And, and, and these hymns, these songs are intended to not just give us an emotional feeling, an emotional high, but these hymns are intended to form us and to tell us what is important, what it is the way, the way that we ought to live. And Paul is using that mechanism in a way here to be able to reference something that is either easy to memorize and easy to connect with or something that they were already familiar with because they were singing it already. And so as we enter into this, Paul is leveraging this great theological hymn in order to be able to capture the mindset of Christ. Now, this text, there have been probably hundreds, if not thousands of books written on just this text, because there is so much theological depth in this text. I, we can't go there. I'm already more than halfway through my sermon right now. We can't go there today. But what I want you to understand is that what happens here is mind-blowing. What happens here is, is unthinkable in our understanding. The God of the universe, Jesus, the, the, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, by his own hands, created and holds together the universe. That he, the creator of the universe, became a creature himself. And it talks about the fact that he, he uh, did not consider being equal with God as something that he would use as, for his own advantage, that he would use in a way to exploit people that were lower than him. He did not use this in a way that would uh, allow him to have a step up after, over everyone else. And instead, he humbled himself. He came down, the, uh, the, uh, Isaiah says in his prophecies, he says, there was nothing about him that was really attractive <laughs> There was nothing about him that drew men to him. He wasn't all that amazing as even as a human being. He came to the low, he was born in a stable. How many of you were born in a stable? I, I wasn't. My son was born on our bedroom floor, and that's about as close to a stable as I think we are willing to go. Jesus came, was born to a stable to a couple of young kids that were trying to figure out what they were doing. But that's the way God designed it because he wanted to make it very clear that his inhabitants, that his human existence was lowly, was humble. It was not great and grand. And it wasn't because he didn't deserve it. He deserved it. It's just the fact that he chose to set that aside in order for us to be in order for us to be able to have a savior that would become and and here's the interesting thing he 
he came down and he said, so what is it that a man, it says he found himself in the form of a man. So what does a man do? Well, a man, humans, are obedient. They should be obedient. And humans, because they're under the curse, are obedient all the way to death. And Jesus took that even a step further and died a criminal's death. So he, uh, he took on and embraced and embodied everything that it meant to be a man, to be a human, when he came down to this earth. And he could have leveraged all of his power to turn that around. But he didn't. Now, I have six applications, and I, I did say applications, so we're coming to the end, and I'm going to walk through this hymn line by line. There's six lines, and I want to draw an application for us as we consider this truth, this hymn, and how it applies to us. Now, first, before we do that, I want you just to turn, actually look across the page, if you're using the Pew Bible, to uh, Philippians 4. Paul is closing out his letter here. And it's interesting, the exact same line, the exact same structure of, the, uh, of, his, of, of uh, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. He uses the exact same wording in the Greek to encourage two women to come together and have peace. Look at this, uh, starting verse 1, verse 4-1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for and joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul, in chapter 2, begins with this great theological uh, um, landmark in the middle of the book. But then when he's talking to two people in this church, he says, help these two ladies get along. They need to have the same mindset as Christ and the Lord. Help them get along. That mindset is what's going to help them get along. And he says, they, they, I'm, not, I'm not talking about two people who are like, you know, not quite in the church. He said, these people were co-workers. They were co-laborers with me in the gospel. Help them get along. And how has he encouraged them? Have the same mindset as Christ. And he encourages the body to come alongside them and to come around them and help them. So in our relationships with one another, this is what we ought to do is the mindset of Christ, the attitude, as it is translated sometimes, the attitude of Christ is what helps us as we, as we draw into our union with Christ. So six things. In our relationships with each other, according to our union with Christ, let us consider these six encouragements of Christ's attitudes. So in our relationships with one another, according to our union with Christ, let us consider these encouragements in Christ's attitudes. Number one. Abandon exploitation. Abandon exploitation. Now, those are two big words. <laughs> abandon, there's a strong abandon exploitation. What in the world? So let's make it a little bit more simple. 
don't use your one-upness, the position that you might have, your place of prominence, your power, your authority as a place to exploit and take advantage of other people. Because Christ didn't do that. Christ was God and he entered into human form. And it says that he did not consider equality with God as something that he was going to use to his advantage. Now, everyone here, everyone here has something that they can leverage for their own advantage. Everyone here has something that they can use to take advantage of people around them. Whatever power or position that you have outside of Christ, though, is either perceived or it's temporary. Outside of Christ, any position or power that you have is just a figment of your imagination. It's perceived. It's just the way you see things. Or it's just temporary. Because if it's not rooted and founded in the union with Christ, then it goes away in eternity. So do not use that as an advantage over other people. We're going to look real quick at chapter 3. So the next chapter, I'm going to to, to scream through this so that we can make sure we don't spend here. But Paul actually gives us his own story, his own testimony to help us to understand how this played out in his life. Now, we are going to finish preaching through this book. We're going to take a break between now and through Easter, and, and then we'll come back to Philippians in, in, a few, in a couple months. So this is the last message. We're, and we're going to get to chapter 3. We'll preach on it again. But I, but I just want to reference it because Paul actually gives us uh, an example of how he has applied this to his own life, how he has, uh, has seen this in his own life. He says this, uh, Philippians chapter 3, and let's look at verse uh, 3. For it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, whatever I have received in the flesh, whatever is mine as a human being, that I have been granted as a human being, he says this, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in their flesh, I have more. So what Paul is saying is this, you think you're awesome, you think your credentials are great, you think that everything that you have, I'm going to tell you, I can one-up you every single time. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying what I have that I could use to exploit, what I have that I could use for my advantage, I, have, I, can, I can do it all. When it comes to religious circles specifically, he's saying I have the ability to leverage this for my own advantage. And so he says this, he gives them, he gives them all the examples. If someone thinks, he says, I have the more. I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regarding the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the one who keeps all the laws. I even make the laws. As for zeal, you want to talk about how zealous and passionate I am? I persecute the church. I go after people, and if they don't submit, I beat them down. That was before he became a believer. But he was very zealous. As for righteousness based on the law, nobody could find a fault with me. So Paul's basically saying, you want the guy, the best guy to do the job when it comes to religious things? I'm your man. But he says this, look at this. Man, I'll tell you what, I want that guy on my team, right? I want that guy to be working with me because he's got all the credentials. But whatever were gains to me, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. I want to have a mindset that's driven by Christ. I want to be close to him. I want to be with him. I want to be in union with him. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the glory of his resurrection, and the participation or the fellowship in his sufferings, being like him in his death. So Paul is saying, as somebody who is a messenger of the gospel, he is saying, I have every reason to come here and to leverage my position and my power on you to make you follow me or to do what I expect of you. But I'm counting all of that as garbage. That's trash. They can take it out on Thursday morning. I don't know what day yours comes. Mine comes on Thursday morning. Instead, I want to know Christ. I want to have the mindset of Christ. The second thing, embrace humiliation. Now, I'm not saying go out and seek to be humiliated, (laughs) although I'm pretty sure that's probably bound to happen. We're going to be humiliated sometimes. But embrace humiliation. If we want to have the mindset of Christ, we need to realize that we need to be like him in that he went from being the creator to a creature. He was rejected by man. It says says that he was despised and rejected by man. He says he came unto his own and his own received him not. He was rejected. He He was pushed aside all the way to the point where when they just said, we have no place for him, they killed him. We killed him. We, the human race, killed the creator of the universe when he came to the earth. That is humbling. (laughs) That's a very humble state to be in. But Jesus embraced it. And so I would encourage us as we take on the mindset of Christ according to the union that we have with him, embrace humiliation. I just broke that into two words. Humiliation. Number three, pursue obedience. Verse 8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Jesus, I already, already mentioned, it wasn't just a death. He didn't just die of an old age. He didn't just die choking on a grape. He was, he was put to death like the worst of criminals, of human criminals. But that was an act of obedience in the sense that this is the only way that he could rescue the world. Now, what I'm going to say right now might shock some of you. It actually might disturb some of you. Some of you might find a new friend. I know little to nothing about Marvel comics or DC comics. I just don't know much about them at all. When I was a kid, there were two superhero movies, 
Superman 1 and Superman 2. That was it. Christopher Reeves, Superman 1, Superman 2. And I don't know if you remember Superman 2. Superman 2, he falls in love. Clark Kent falls in love. And there's this conflict of interest. He cannot be Superman and retain his powers as an alien from another planet and have a relationship and potentially marry Lois Lane, this human being. And so what's he do? He does what's necessary to clean, clear himself of all his power so that he can go and be with Lois Lane and, and have the girl. He wanted the girl. Well, then I just remember as a kid thinking the first time he goes to the gas station, he gets beat up. He's like the face punched in. It's like, dude, why'd you do that? <laughs> but then he goes through this whole thing. And then all of a sudden these three other villains from you know, his world, they come and they are attacking the earth. And he realized, what have I have done? What have I done? It's either the girl or it's saving the world. And so what's he do? He makes the human trek back up to the North Pole somehow, finds the little cave where the little kryptonite crystal is still there so that he could do something to leverage his power again. And he takes on his power and he goes back and he saves the world uh, again. Well, that's a great story. I actually love the story. It's kind of a cool story, except for he misses, doesn't get the girl. He doesn't really end up with both. He has to stay Superman, so he's kind of at this... But here's the reality. is That's a great story. But Jesus' story is better than that. Because the church here is his bride. He came for his bride. The only way that he could get his bride, the girl, is to die. And so he came and took on human form. And he came here and he didn't have to choose. I can either be God or I can have my bride, the church. No. He didn't do that. He said, I am going to die a human because that is the only way that I can use who I am, fully God and fully man, to take the gift of the church to me as my bride. So he got the girl and he saved the world. That's amazing. And so death here, when we, when we think about how it is that we ought to live, we need to pursue obedience. I love Wesley's hymn. We don't sing it enough. We should sing it more. There's a verse that says this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Wow. What an amazing, amazing reality. His emptying of himself found me. Now, I love that Wesley uses the term Adam's race. So in essence, Jesus gave up his equality with God to take on a name. I'm going to take on Adam's name. I'm going to take on the name of Adam's race. And I am going to put up with and follow in obedience all that that name demands of me. And that what that name demands of him was to go to be mocked, to be beaten, to be killed as a criminal. He took on the curse of Adam's race, our human race, and followed through it all the way to the bitter end. And what happened? Number four, 
claim Christ's exaltation. In being in union with Christ, claim Christ's exaltation. What are you talking about? Claim his exaltation. I thought we were supposed to be humble. Well, no, it's not us. Christ is exalted. What's it say? Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and has given him a name that is above every name. So Carlin is stuck with the Blaha name (laughs) till she dies. But what happened here? What happened here was because he took on Adam's name. He took on Adam's race. God looked at that and said, yes, I will now exalt you and give you a name that is above every name. He bestowed on him a name that was above every name. And and, and those who are at union with him receive that exaltation. In in 1 Timothy, he says, if we deny him, he will deny us. But if we follow him or if we obey him, then he will exalt us. 1 Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. You don't have to turn there. In the same way, um, he says, all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So humility in union with Christ leads to exaltation in Christ. So claim Christ's exaltation. Number five, obsess over Jesus. Obsess over Jesus. I'm not just talking saying, yeah, I like Jesus. I read my Bible. I'm just saying Jesus is everything. He is everything. If we are at union with him and we have nothing apart from him, obsess over Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue in heaven and earth and under the earth. Everyone is going to praise the name of Jesus. So as his bride, as those who are in union with him, obsess over him. That's a strong word. You're like, I, there's a few things that I obsess about. <laughs> I don't know. You don't, you don't want to see me obsessed. Well, Jesus does. He wants you just to like follow him and, and listen to him and absorb him and everything and do what he's, he wants all of that. Obsess about Jesus. Prioritize the worship of Jesus and delight in Jesus at all times and everything. And lastly, claim and exclaim the glory of Christ beginning now. You know why beginning now? Because and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So claim and exclaim the glory of Christ. Live in such a way that Jesus is seen in your lives, that he is magnified in your lives. We need to prioritize the worship of Jesus in our lives. Now, the only way that we can do these things is in accordance with the unity, the union that we have with Christ. We can only do these things with that. But these are encouragements as we understand in the, uh, the, the theological reality of the union of Christ guides us and leads us. These are the things, these are the things that we ought to pursue. Now, what does that mean for Redeemer Church? What does that mean for us? 
All these things are ways in which we can live and act toward one another that would bring glory to God, that would be, of, that would be like-minded with Christ. And the reality is, is that Jesus offers this and he, encur- he doesn't just offer, he encourages our mindset, our attitudes, knowing that we're messed up people. <laughs> he knows that we're messed up people. He knows that we will exploit whenever we get an opportunity. We'll take advantage of people when we get the opportunity. He knows that we won't obey when we are called to obey. He knows that we won't be humble. He knows all those things. He even knows that we would prefer to claim our own exaltation over his exaltation. He knows all those things. So what are we doing here? How are we going to, how is this beautiful to him? I'm going to close real quick with this. Nine years ago, when Pastor Bob and I moved uh, here to California to plant Redeemer Church, Redeemer Church was a mess. It wasn't even a church. There was no Redeemer Church. It was a church that had closed down months before we got here because they were in just a horrible condition. They were going to close their doors. And Pastor Bob and I, by God's calling to be here in the Bay Area, pursued uh, pursued what God had given to us. And when you look at it from a human standpoint, coming out here was pretty much a death sentence, not a death sentence. They call, they call the Bay Area the, uh, the graveyard for church planters. <laughs> I didn't know if you know that, but people outside, that's what they call this area. We had no money. We really didn't have a lot of much to work with. And the church that we were supposed to be working with was in a lawsuit. Uh, they couldn't get along. They didn't even want to have meetings on Sundays. And we came here and we really pursued the calling that God would have for us to plant a new church in that place called Redeemer Church. And we were trying to go through what kind of a name should we give this church? What kind of a name does this church, do we want this name to be? And you know what? As we talked about this at the time, we just realized that the only way that God could take and use the condition, the dysfunction, the brokenness of of that church, of what we were given in that moment, the only way that he could use that is it had to be redeemed. And it had to be supernaturally redeemed. It had to be God coming in and doing something that when it was said and done, there was no other way to say that we are now a church that pursues and brings glory to God. So what kind of name and body is that? And we liked the idea of redemption, of the act of being redeemed. But you know what we wanted? We prayed for. We wanted that in the end, if Redeemer Church became a successful, healthy church in the Bay Area, that we wanted one name to stand out. That when people heard what was going on at this church, one name that stood out above the all. And you know what that was? The Redeemer the Redeemer, Jesus, the one who is exalted above all. He is the one name by which all of this exists. So when we gather together in this community, we are joined in union with God. Why? Because this is his church. This is his place. This is the place that he came and died. We are his bride. He gave himself so that he could have this 
church, Redeemer Church, and the church universal. So let us live in accordance with these things as his example, but also in union with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for this text, the way in which Paul leverages this hymn to be able to encourage us to understand and know you better, to know you more and more. God, we praise you. You are indeed the name above all names. Your name is the only name that matters. And we take on the glory of your name because you were willing to take on the, glo- the, 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 the dysfunction and the, um, the cursedness of Adam's name. So God, thank you for doing that. Use your word, your spirit today to change our lives. In Christ's name, amen.